Welcome to Wired for Impact, home of creators, entrepreneurs, and leaders who are wired to make a difference. If you're here, it's because you have three things. Number one, a unique gift or calling. Number two, you care about people. And number three, you have a deep desire to contribute. When you add those three things up, you are in the game of creating impact. You are what I call an impact player. My name is Peter King. I'm the host of the program. And in each episode, I have conversations with world-class impact players who have aligned their unique gifts with the contribution they've made in the world to create massive impact. So listen into these conversations and allow them to inspire you to overcome the obstacles in your way and to fulfill your potential. I'm here with Bal Dobe. Bal, thank you so much for taking the time today. It's a pleasure, Peter. Fantastic. I um, was inspired to have you on my podcast because of several things that I was just watching you post online and uh, your financial expertise is something that I would love to learn more uh, about myself. I'm not, uh, I haven't studied the markets uh, certainly as long as you have, and you'd made some posts about microcaps and some other things. And it's such an interesting time right now in the world uh, uh, geopolitically, but how that all interconnects economically is something that's fascinating to me. And um, especially with someone from your perspective and your background, uh, I'd love to, you know, extract some of that wisdom today. So first and foremost, thank you again for joining me today. It's my pleasure, Peter. Um, thank you so much for reaching out to me. I mean, it's always a pleasure to share what one knows. I think I've been in the markets for so long that um, we tend to get a little bit blindsided and a little bit myopic in our view. And sometimes it's good to speak to people like yourself who are who aren't necessarily experts, but you have a good understanding of it, uh, and it, it's good to sort of have discussions and even as a sounding board to see where we're landing. Yes, and I think especially because not everybody is an expert in this space, but a lot of people do have portfolios and do have investments, um, and it's nice to get perspective from various financial experts. So, for those that uh, are not aware of your background, can you share a little bit about? Um, who you are and what your financial background is? Sure. Well, my education started in uh, in physics, believe it or not. Uh, as a <coughs> as a teenager, I was a, a science geek, and then <laughs> pursued that for the best part of ten years, and went to university, studied physics, uh, and completed that. Um, after that, I then uh, left physics to go into the financial markets, and this was in the late eighties, and. Initially, I just got into sort of trading. I was trading stocks whilst I was at university, and it was a completely different structure at that time. Um, but then I was offered a job by a options valuation firm. Now, I'd never heard of these type of uh, organizations, and I'd never even heard of options. But basically, what they did was they used mathematical models to value options and other derivative instruments. Um, the only people who actually understood those mathematical models, strangely enough, were scientists like myself, engineers, and mathematicians. Um, the formulas that we used were things that were sort of fairly standard to us. But for most people, these things were sort of rather harebrained. So I did that for a few years. And then I decided to go more into accounting and tax and to more look at the sort of financial side of uh, companies. I did that for the best part of uh, 21 years. I put together tax structures, looked at tax compliance, 
for large organizations like Lehman Brothers, Barclays, GE, uh, BP. So you know, some fairly big, solid names. And then after doing that for about 20 years, I decided to, <coughs> excuse me, decided to essentially go on my own and start trading for myself. And the reason I started to do that was I noticed that whilst I was trading and I also had money managers, I had professional money managers that was, were managing a portfolio of funds for me, I noticed that I was doing significantly better than some of these <laughs> professional money managers. And I thought, well, this shouldn't be the case because I'm doing this part time. And whereas you guys are doing this full time, you should be doing better than me. Mm -hmm. So it was at that point I decided to think, okay, well, you know, I need to sort of be doing this full time. And I've been doing that now for the best part of 10 years. And that takes me to where I am now. Um, I've had various people reach out to me uh, saying that they would like to learn from me and they would like to sort of understand what it is that I do. Now, I'd always been shy about doing this, thinking that I really don't know enough. But a friend of mine pointed out and she said to me, she said, look, you've climbed so high up that you've lost touch with where people really are. You think that as you climb up the mountain, there's more of the mountain to climb. And there is, there always will be. Mm -hmm. However, there are a lot of people who you could help out. And that's what I ended up doing. Uh, so that's what I've been doing for the last few years now, mentoring people and teaching people, uh, helping them to enjoy some of the success that I enjoyed essentially. But it's not about turning them into clones of myself. As Tony says to us, uh, Tony Robbins says to us, you know, he's not there to make us clones of himself. He's there to bring out the best in us. So that's what I do with uh, the people that I mentor. I bring out the best in them. I get them to find out what's their style, what's going to work for them, and how can they use that and capitalize upon that. Um, <clears throat> two questions. First and foremost, for those that are listening, uh, Bal and I met in the Tony Robbins community, which is why we refer to Tony on a first name basis often. But um, your when you look at somebody and you look at their person, uh, what are you looking at for them? Are you looking at their risk tolerance? Are you looking at their their pos financial positions? What are you looking at first and foremost um, before you teach them the fundamentals? The first thing that I want to find out is, is this person, is this person willing to learn? And before I take on anybody, if they're not the sort of person who wants to spend time on themselves and wants to learn and invest in themselves, I say to them bluntly, say, look, I'm not for you. You know, you're not the sort of person that I can help because this stuff, it's not, it's not easy but at the same time it's not difficult it can be done but you need to put in some time and you need to actually be focused and really learn the stuff that's the first thing i would look at and then the mm -hmm. second thing is really very much it's open essentially it is open to what are they looking for so i've got people who are have a very high capacity for risk and they want to they want to be very active traders but then the, at the other end of the scale i've got people who are very passive and they have a very low appetite for risk so for me it's a case of finding out what's going to work for you and putting together a tailor-made plan for that person okay um <clears throat> and then you mentioned before that you started trading and that you were outperforming some of the other financial experts what was it that you were doing that they were not um for myself i think i would say that i was very flexible so 
I had positions when I initially started on trading, I was very, very passive. I wanted, I found a broker that I said to them, I said, look, I don't need research. I don't need advice. I just want the lowest, lowest cost possible. I'm going to be very passive. There's not going to be active trading at all. So I went from that to then looking at when opportunities arose. So for example, around the 2008 financial crisis, we looked at, uh, there's a position that I took on with Apple. I remember buying Apple stock at, at the time, it was around $82. I think it was $82.35 that I paid for it. Now, I was looking at it from a fundamental point of view, even though I was in the markets at the time. I was working uh, at an investment bank at the time. And I was looking at the numbers and thinking, look, this is not a company that's going to go anywhere anytime soon. They are so <laughs> pregnant with cash. Now, 80, I turned $82 into something like, I think I sold out at around $780 over a period of time. Mm -hmm. And since then, Apple has had a stock split. So, you know, it, it's bypassed even that. So what happened then was I then started taking on positions like Warren Buffett, essentially. I became what friends of mine call, you're a Buffetteer. You're using the same sort of strategy, same sort of analysis that he does. So I then started doing that. Then the markets changed again. And when the markets changed again, I became more of an active trader. Um, and again, when the markets changed again, I thought, okay, now I can start trading using options. So I think what I was doing was flexibility. It was a case of being adaptable to what the market was and being able to change my approach. And that's the benefit of having your own sort of small hedge fund, essentially. You can mm -hmm. take on whatever positions you like. You can, uh, you know, you can go short one minute, you can go long the next, you can trade exotic instruments. A lot of, uh, a lot of the sort of big funds can't necessarily do that. Their hands are tied. Their hands are tied by the regulators for, mm. for good reason. Mm -hmm. When you say that you're adapting to the market changes, are you looking at cycles? Are you looking at technology, perhaps, uh, that's new technology that's available? What exactly are you looking at to assess your your ground basis, if you will. I think there's three things that I look at. First of all, I look at the business itself. Is this a fundamentally good business? And then I look at thinking, okay, well, what sort of period of time are we holding this for? And then thirdly, we look at what um, what's the return that we want from this? So, for example, there are certain positions that I had which were just pure cash generators. So I was in the uh, in the oil business, for example. <clears throat> Now, oil is one of those businesses where they, their business is very, very simple. All they do is they drill a hole in the ground, they get some oil out, they process it, and they sell it. They generate huge amounts of cash. So it's, uh, although it's a capital-intensive business, essentially they're generating a lot of cash. Mm -hmm. So those are good dividend payers. Then you get um, things like the microcaps coming up. Now, these are sort of fast-growing companies where you're going to see very, very big returns over a very short short space of time now they're not necessarily companies that may be around for a long long time but as long as you accept that then that's okay and the third thing is discipline you have to have the discipline when it comes to trading um the most difficult part is not so much the analysis it's not so much the numbers the number crunching is fairly straightforward and that can be taught it's these um it's the market psychology the personal psychology and the personal discipline. How does it feel to actually lose money? What do you do? Do you panic? Do you act with a cool head? What do you do? That's the most difficult part to master. Mm. I've recently gotten into the crypto space and <clears throat> it's been 
I've done real estate investing in the past. I've um, done small business type stuff um, to generate revenue, but I've never really invested directly into the markets and getting, dipping my toe into the crypto market has really shed a light on some of the fundamentals that I didn't know. Um, <clears throat> and as a novice, uh, you know, honestly, transparently, a lot of what I thought about the markets was buy and hold, you know, you, you have some money to invest and you invest in some stocks and, you know, the trend is always seemingly to go up over time. Um, <clears throat> and I've started to mature a little bit. If, I, if I'm at the base of the mountain, I've maybe gone up 10 feet <laughs> compared to where you're at, but, um, <laughs> people always talked about having a plan and I was always like, but you never know, like you never know what the market's going to do. And so in my head, I told myself a story that, you know, a plan is nice, but as I've started to learn the fundamentals, I've started to realize, like you were saying, you need to have a sense of, of your exit strategy and, and what type of return are you expecting to get? And then having the emotional, uh, the guts basically to deal with the turbulence as the, the price action goes up or down, um, can you stay disciplined according to your very own plan? Is that essentially what you're talking about? That's yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about, Peter. Um, I think it was a, a very famous Douglas um, general. I think it was Gen General Douglas MacArthur that said that it's great to have a plan, but the moment the plan where the rubber hits the road, where the plan meets the enemy, you're going to have to change it, no matter mm -hmm. how good your plan. And that's always the case, even in trading. Yes, you can have a plan, and it's good to have something to start with however you have to be flexible you have to be flexible and say right when this happens i'm out yeah gotcha um can you <clears throat> you said a second ago that the number crunching was something that's teachable can you give us an idea as to what numbers you're looking at and what do you what do you teach one of your clients well there's various aspects into the number crunching. So if you're looking at, say, trading options, for example, options are, are fairly sophisticated instruments. So you need to understand there things like what they call the Greeks. What, are, what does it mean when a, an option has a delta of 75? I mean, that essentially means that for every $1 move in the stock, your option is going to move 75 cents. So it's a 75% move. Um, but then you've got the gamma, which is the, the rate at which the delta changes. So an option, which is, say, at the money, may be, let's say, 50%. So for every dollar move in the stock price, the option is going to move 50 cents. But then that delta changes. So if the stock moves, let's say, $2, now your delta has changed to, let's say, 75. Mm -hmm. And then how does that delta change with respect to stock price? That's called gamma. Then you've got time decay. So you've got all sorts of parameters when it comes to options. When you're looking at stocks, you want to start looking at things like how profitable is this company? Well, how much cash do they have? What's their net book value? So, for example, with Apple, when they were generating so much cash and they were trading at less than net book value, that meant if the company was to be broken up, you would get more cash than you paid for the stock itself. So things like that. And essentially that comes from being able to read accounts, being able to understand financial statements. Um, and one of the things we learned from, say, Keith Cunningham was how to read financial statements from the point of cash flow. Cash flow is very, very important. Mm -hmm. So there's three aspects to a company's financials. You've got the P&L, the balance sheet, and the cash flow. And it's a case of understanding how do all those three tie in? What information are they telling me? What metrics are they giving me about the company? And how can I use that for uh, investing? Mm.
Um, how often are you looking at management? Oh, all the time. You have to mm-hmm. look at management. Um, that comes what do you look for? Analysis. Yeah, what are you looking for when you're when you're doing analysis on management? You look at the credibility of the management. What's their background? Uh, what's the, the the management team? What's their background uh, in terms of their track record? Uh, what sort of what do they bring to the table? What's their leadership qualities? And you have to read that and ascertain that from the financial statements. So it's reading between the lines in the financial in the financial statements. Mm. Um, okay, so you're looking at the financials. You're looking at management. What other fundamental uh, data points are you looking at? You, um, another thing that I would look at is what kind of market are they in? So are they in a market that's a growing market, which no matter what happens, they're going to grow? Or are they in a market that's declining? So looking at, let's say, newspapers, for example, if you're in the newspaper business right now, that's a declining business. That's a business that uh, is losing readership. Um, if you were, say, around, I think, the late 90s, early 2000s, anything that was in the internet space, the sheer fact that they're in the internet space, you think, well, this is a rising market. However, is it a long-term player? That's when you start looking at the fundamentals. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to say that, you know, we were able to pick the big winners from the internet. We could pick the Googles and the Amazons and the Teslas. But it's a crapshoot, to be honest with you. Not everybody can. Mm-hmm. And you have to look at the fundamentals. Uh, things like Tesla, for example. Tesla was predicted to be the next Apple. I saw that around 2012, and that was when I was reading Steve Jobs' biography. Uh, or, well, yeah, Steve Jobs' biography, and somebody in there mentioned in terms of the way Apple was run in the early days was very similar to the way Tesla was being run in those days. And in those days, Tesla was trading at around $30 a share. Mm. Interesting. Um for uh, you've been in the markets, I think you said since the 80s, is that correct? Since the late 80s, yes. So you've seen a few rises and falls. You've seen these cycles. Ray Dalio talks a lot about um, debt cycles and then, and then broader cycles. Um, what have you learned in these big cycles and where are we right now here in mid-2022? <coughs> what I've seen over the time that I've been in the markets is that often you start to see the same pattern again and again and you start to hear very much the same kind of rhetoric so in the late 80s we were hearing uh, how things were different how there was an economic miracle that was taking place and that therefore we could have this sustained growth however there were a few people at that time saying look these are crazy prices Um, this can't be sustained and that was the bull market of the late 80s and then we saw Black Monday and I can remember being in a trading room on Black Monday in 1987 and seeing a complete red screen. Now, red screens, I don't know if people realize it. So when prices move up, the, the ticker symbol goes green. When prices are moving down, it's red. And you used to see the sort of top 100 shares and it would show everything was red. And there was like just it was ridiculous. You think, what the hell is going on? Mm. So that was in 87. And then you saw the recovery. Now, then we saw exactly the same thing happening in 2008. We saw the same thing happening around the internet bubble, where the internet stocks were, everyone was saying, oh, it's different this time. Uh, The economy is different. The world is different. And of course, we saw the dot-com 
bubble burst. We saw the financial crisis of 2008. Again, these were caused by different scenarios. 2008 was caused by um, subprime markets in the US and the contagion that spread around the world from that. And because the market was so interrelated that something like that could spread around the world, liquidity just dried up. Mm. We saw that. And then we we saw the pandemic last year, uh, last uh, couple of years or so ago, I mean, thankfully or hopefully the pandemic is a once in a lifetime event that we will hopefully never see again, certainly in our lifetimes. Yeah. Um, so so if, if I'm understanding what you're saying is that <clears throat> people were saying in each of those cycles that, oh, this time is different and that your analysis or, or your perspective at this point was there's a there's a predictability or there's a, a repeating cycle and that eventually things tend to turn around. Is that what you're saying? Essentially, yes. You tend to see, I mean, when everyone, I think the, the, the sort of story on Wall Street was when the shoeshine guy is recommending stocks, that's recommending to buy stock, that's the time to sell. So again, we see very, very similar sort of things happening in the markets. We see this, I think it was, um, I can't remember who that it was said, um, irrational exuberance, may have been Alan Greenspan who said that, that you've got the mm. irrational exuberance taking place. When you see that, you think, okay, it's only a matter of time now. And then the other side of the coin is that when when things do crash, things get oversold, people tend to panic. And that's the time if you've got, if you've got balls of steel to really be going in, if you've got, if you can weather the storm, that's the time to think, right, now's the time to pick up bargains. Now's the time that I can go into the market and really pick up bargains. Mm. In order to do that sort of thing, in order to be like that, you really need the liquidity to be able to do that. And you need to be able to weather the storm because things could go even worse against you. Um, and if that's the case, if you believe in the positions, then the best thing to do is to actually be buying more rather than thinking, okay, I, I called it wrong. Right. <clears throat> so where do you think that we're at right now? It doesn't seem that there's a lot of optimism. Um, seems like we're on a, on a downward trend. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, yeah. What's your assessment of where we're at right now? We seem to be in a bear market. We seem to have seen an, um, sort of whipsawing taking place as a result of the pandemic. I mean, we saw massive drops in March 2019 or 2020 when the when the pandemic was kicking off, uh, when all of that was happening. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we saw months later, we saw negative oil prices, which we've never seen before. Um, and then we saw the market sort of recovering from that and shooting up. Um, we are now seeing a correction to that. We've got various different uh, things we're seeing structural changes taking place in the world economy. We've got the war in Ukraine that's going to have an impact in terms of, it's already going to have an impact in food prices, in terms of inflation, what's going on there. We're going to see a structural change that is going to be taking place as a result of the pandemic with supply chains. So the world prior to the pandemic was very, very global. <coughs> we were very globally connected. Mm-hmm. China was the factory of the world that was producing a lot of the products and the West uh, was able to enjoy cheap products as a result. However, when the pandemic kicked off, we saw how fragile that was and structural changes have been made in the US and in Europe where supply chains are going to be shortened now. So you're going to be seeing, uh, well, we already are, we're seeing factories being built in Europe and in the US so that we are no longer as reliant on China as we have been. China is also politically um, 
very sensitive as well. So we have to be careful about our relationship with China in terms of uh, geopolitics. If we look at what's happening with Russia, look at uh, how we've had to impose sanctions on what Russia has been doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, If somebody like China was to do something like that, then we're talking about a very, very serious situation. Yeah, it seems like <clears throat> it seems like politics uh, right now uh, are taking precedence over economic health uh, for all countries. Um, oh, China China's in complete lockdown. Um, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of um, complexity going on in Eastern Europe. Um, those things are certainly affecting the average Westerners pocketbook. It seems um, how much of we talked about these different cycles. What amount of your perspective is focused on the fiat cycle that we're in right now. We have a fiat currency. All fiat currencies have eventually gone to zero. Do you look at that at all? Does that factor into your analysis or not as much? Uh, No, not as much. It's not something that I look at. I mean, I have to admit, um, although I do look at uh, the crypto space, um, I adopt Warren Buffett's philosophy when he looked at the internet. He said, look, this thing may be a technological change. However, it's not something that I trade a lot because I simply don't understand it. And I would say the same with cryptos. It's not something that I have a deep understanding of. Whilst I have small positions in it, I would emphasize they are small positions because it is something that is not my area of expertise. And I still wonder, I mean, the whole place is still very, very, very much like the wild, wild west. Will it result in structural changes? It probably will, but those will be over the next five, 10, maybe 20 years or so. The big uh, fly in the ointment there are the regulators. I don't see the U.S. government letting go of the U.S. dollar as the world reserve currency because they can regulate in a way that nobody else can. And I see the same happening with other governments around the world. What What's a little concerning, I think, um, I read an article that said that the negative oil pricing, which you mentioned earlier, was the first time that that's ever happened, was the beginning of the end of the U.S. dollar as a global currency. Um uh, re- pushing crypto aside for a second, do you look at just the the waning purchasing power? Actually, right now the the purchasing power of the dollar is up a little bit. But um, do you look at the the waning power purchasing power as we've printed you know trillions and trillions of dollars? I think uh, the statistic I heard was that we've printed forty percent of the the supply of the entire history of America's dollar in the last handful of years? Is that um, something that you factor into your analysis? It's something that I have looked at. Um, Whilst the US has printed a lot, I think so have other currencies. So Mm -hmm. the purchasing power is going to be relative to everything else. So unless there is something out there that is going to be a preserver of value, then I don't see the US dollar letting go of its position as the world reserve currency anytime soon. I mean, we're looking at maybe 20, 30 years or so is Mm. the sort of period we're looking at. The threat may come more from China rather than uh, crypto, I think, because China, uh, the thing with China is that their currency is not easily uh, tradable into US dollars. So it's not as an open currency. It's not an openly traded currency. If they were to change that, then we could see the Chinese currency as a major competitor to the US dollar as a world reserve currency, simply because the backing of the RIMBI would be the Chinese economy. 
So the strength of the US dollar comes from the strength of the US economy. It's still the world's strongest economy in the, um, around. Uh, it's also the world's most flexible economy. I mean, we could see Euro maybe, but problem with Euro, uh, problem with Europe is that we've got structural changes here. Europe is not as flexible as the US dollar or the US. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would argue that maybe the the backing of the US dollar really comes from the US military. Um, and that if you don't play ball the way that the US government wants you to, that you have the, the US military is a fairly strong <laughs> Uh, determined to stay in in your lane, so to speak, and I think that 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 to me is a big piece because as we look at geopolitics and we look at what China is doing and and of course Russia right now, um, I think actually both have indicated that they're looking to possibly peg their their currencies to gold. Um, it's it, it, what's very clear to me is that there's big shifts happening on a global scale and, uh, and, and, you know, how that affects everybody is, is still yet to be seen. But I think your point of flexibility uh, comes into play here and being open to making adjustments. Oh yes. I mean, uh, there are certainly massive tectonic shifts that are taking place. We've seen that over the last, uh, over the last three, four years. So over the last five years or so, we saw what happened with Brexit um, and the rise in popularism um, that over the last sort of five years or so we've seen that may be waning. I mean, Brexit has clearly been a bit of a disaster. We've seen Boris Johnson finally kicked out of number 10. Um, it's almost as though he behaved very similarly, although not exactly the same as Donald Trump uh, in yeah. terms of 20, in terms of the election there. So that maybe we've seen the back of that. We're certainly seeing a new world order sort of coming into play. Now, in terms of the war, um, that's an odd one to call. That really is. I mean, essentially, the West is fighting a proxy war against Russia. You know, mm-hmm. we're basically feeding, uh, we're fighting a war with Russia through Ukraine. Yep. Um, I mean, the disaster there would be if that turns nuclear, then it would really be, I think people have said it would really would be game over for the human race as we know it now. It's possible. Um, in terms of the world's military, um, in terms of, as I said, the U.S. military industrial complex is certainly the biggest and most well-funded ever. However, the, the fly in the ointment there is if you look at what happened in Afghanistan, why did they pull out of there? Why was the, the major, I mean, we're talking about the most well-funded technologically, uh, economically, even ideological uh, military in the world, was not able to defeat the Taliban. They have yeah. gone back by like, best part of 20 years or so. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, that to me is a head scratcher <laughs> at the very least. Um, and I don't, I wouldn't necessarily say that it was just simply due to uh, being defeated. I mean, obviously, this is a, maybe a philosophical debate, but um, I, it, one has to question because that doesn't make sense. Um, it seems that there might be some ulterior alternative motives, at least from my perspective, um, by the policymakers in that situation. Cause it just doesn't, it just doesn't add up. But, but that aside, um, I, I'm interested in your take on for somebody who's listening to this right now saying, okay, I mean, these, these are things that I have no control over. Uh, you know, I, I see that they're happening on some level. I might think it's this or that, but at the end of the day, I have my, I have my investments. 
I'm trying to put food on the table. I'm recognizing that gas is costing a lot more. My groceries are costing a lot more. What, what are some of the fundamentals that you like to help teach your students that school is not teaching them so that they can be more um, robust traders in today's current volatile climate? I think that what we'd have to look at is what I, what I tend to look at with people is to say, well, okay, what's your personal situation and your personal um, way of being, for want of a better word? So, for example, let me give you an example of one of my, uh, one of my mentees. He's an architect. And he wanted to learn about trading and he wanted to learn about investing. So I said, okay, well, let, let's get started. Uh, he spent some time with me and, and he was in my office and he spent a few hours with me, sat in front of like five computer screens with prices, with charts, with data and all of that. And he said to me, he said, look, I don't know how you can do this. He said, all this information that is coming at you, how can you spot? He said, like, you've managed to see a price move of like a few cents amongst this barrage of data. He said, this would just do my head in. He said, I would <laughs> hate to do this. And I said, well, in that case, you're not somebody for whom trading is the thing that you should be doing. He mm. said to me, he said, he can go into a space a complete blanket space with nothing and imagine where everything's going to be because he thinks in three dimensions. He thinks, mm -hmm. I, I see where the windows are going to be. I can see where the rooms are going to be, the, the floors, everything. And I can create that. And I said, well, your best bet is for you to make your money from being an architect and doing what you love doing. And then to basically look at your portfolio as infrequently as possible. <laughs> Basically. Right. And for right. him, he was looking, he looks at it like once a month and makes minor adjustments then. And once a month is more than enough for somebody like that. Now mm -hmm. compare that to one of my other mentees. Now he's a gambler. He was a professional poker player. Mm. And he loves being in front of screens, seeing the movement, seeing what's going on. He gets a buzz from that. He gets excited on switching on uh, his screens and seeing what's going on. Uh, and now he has, for him, it's a very, very different approach. Mm -hmm. So for somebody who's saying, well, you know, I, I have a, I have a standard job. Uh, this is what I want to do for them. I would say, well, okay, what are your plans? What are you planning for? Are you planning on buying a home? Are you planning on your children's education on your retirement? How can you manage your positions? How can you manage your portfolio so that you don't get sort of screwed over by the financial system? Mm -hmm. And I think Tony mentioned this in, in, in his book, Money Master the Game, where he says, which he wrote after the 2008 financial crisis. And he explains in that how the system is actually structured in such a way to screw people over. And I, I have been part of that system. And I look at it and I think, you know what? I'm a reasonably intelligent guy. I'm not a genius, but I'm reasonably intelligent. And yet some of this stuff even confuses me. Mm -hmm. And it's when you look in the small print that you see how the system is structured to screw people over. And that, that is just, that's a shame. That really is. And that, it, it does that to people who, who don't have the basic education, who don't understand the basics of it. And mm -hmm. a lot of people, they what they do is they hit a brick wall when you mention numbers, when you mention finance, and when you come up with jargon. Now, it can sound complicated, but it doesn't have to be. It really doesn't. It's a bit like computers. Computers are, are very sort of complex machines, and yet we all use them. 
We don't need to know how the CPU and the RAM and the chipset and how all of that works. You don't need to do that. Mm. All you need to know is how the various different uh, software that you want to use works mm-hmm. and how to get the best out of it. That's it. If someone came to you and said, uh, you, t- you said a second ago when you're working with a mentee, you know, what are you looking to get out of this? Are you, you know, are you looking to buy a home or whatever? If someone came to you and they said they're looking to generate passive income to offset their, their monthly expenses, what, where would you guide them? What, what kind of vehicles would you, would you help them get into to develop passive income? Well, for somebody like that, I'd look at their risk appetite and see what's their risk appetite, what's their time frame, And then we can look at either, um, say, something like if they want to be very passive, they say, you know what, I'm in the U.S., uh, I'm tied to the U.S. economy. Um, for somebody like that, simply ETFs, low-cost ETFs, uh, or something like, say, the all-weather portfolio that Ray Dalio put together. And mm-hmm. that has been time and time tested. Now, that's at an odd place because that's, that works during a massive bull run in the bond market. But now that we're seeing interest rates rising, it may be time to sort of adjust that slightly. Mm-hmm. But it's a case of thinking, okay, what's your perspective? What are we going to be seeing? Are we going to be seeing inflation rising? Or are we going to see inflation being topped out? How can we hedge against inflation? How can I generate income that is uh, passive income that can then be compounded? So things like that. I mean, there are some wonderful instruments out there, things like Vanguard uh, ETFs. Now, Vanguard is a very well-run company. The management of that is very, very conservative. They have very, very low costs, which is what you want. And they discourage active in-out trading. For somebody who wants, who doesn't want to be a trader, that would be ideal. And do those pay dividends? Yes, yes, they pay dividends. So when you look at ETFs, if if you look at, say, a bond ETF, so for example, if you want to invest in corporate bonds, you as a uh, a sort of retail investor may not be able to uh, invest in a corporate bond directly. But what you can do is you can invest in uh, corporate bond ETFs. And what you look at is not so much the ETF, you look at what makes up that ETF. So the ETF is made up of these particular bonds. So Mm -hmm. that's what you've got. And as those bonds pay uh, dividends, your ETF pays you a dividend. Mm-hmm. And then you gotcha. can reinvest that dividend. So essentially, you're holding those bonds by proxy. Gotcha. Um, I'm. Uh, I'd love to get to to go in a little bit further on better understanding options. Um, this is just a personal question that I have of you, as if you and I were possibly going to work together. Um, what like, help me better understand options? I know the very basics, but um, how does it? <laughs> How does a trader use options as a vehicle to grow their portfolio? Options are, the way I would describe options is they are like surgical instruments in an operating room. They are very sharp scalpels, very highly engineered machines. However, in order to get the best out of them, you really need to be a surgeon. You really need to know what you're doing with them. And you need to understand what you're doing. So, for example, you can have positions where the market's not moving very much. And you can, if that's your perspective and you think, okay, I don't think this market's going to be moved very much. And you can put on positions that capitalize on that lack of movement. 
Alternatively, you can be in highly volatile markets where there's a lot of movement, and then you can capitalize from that as well. Mm-hmm. So options enable you. I mean, they're very, very simple instruments. Uh, a call option, for example, is the right, but not the obligation to buy a particular stock. And a put option is the right, but not the obligation to sell that. Now, because of those last words, but not the obligation, it changes how you value it. Because if it was the right, then it becomes a future. And then you value those the way, same way that you would futures. But when they, when they introduced it as an option that you have the choice, then that changes the P&L profile completely. Hmm. So the thing to understand with options is that you can have very highly leveraged positions for very, very small amounts of money, provided you know what you're doing, provided you know what you're doing. However, mm-hmm. there is a downside to it. There is a, a, an increased risk, but you can manage that risk. Does that make sense? Does that help? It, it does. I mean, that's <clears throat> that covers sort of my broad overview or understanding of it. What I'd be interested in is if I was to work with you and I'd say, okay, cool, Bell, I get it. Um, now what? what? What's sort of the next steps? Do you? Do, how does someone like myself that's a, essentially a novice in this space better learn to become the surgeon so that I know when appropriately to use the scalpel. Um, it, it, am I getting my feet wet a little bit and just starting to do trades and, and, and then you're saying, see how this did this and this did this, or is there something else? Well, the way I work with people is the first thing I would do is to tell you what are the basics. So you would understand what are the bricks that you are working with. So what does a scalpel do? The scalpel cuts. What does a pair of scissors do? What does a, a drill do? What does a surgical saw do? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So to understand what they actually do. Then we would look at how different combinations of those generate different profiles. So you would literally get your hands dirty and say, okay, what if this happened? How would my position look? What, what if this happened? So you're literally doing it by hand and seeing what would happen under various different conditions. And then we start to look at the markets. And initially, um, I don't get people to start putting their money into it. I would get them to do paper trading and say, right, let's put on some trades and play with blank bullets. So you're not trading with live bullets Mm -hmm. because I don't want people to lose large sums of money or any money, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. So once you then become confident, those are essentially the training wheels. Once you then become confident there that you have an understanding of this, then you can start entering the market and say, right, now let's start putting positions on and start playing with real money and initially starting small, start small and then leverage from there and grow from there rather than just going sort of piling straight in. Because the most difficult part of it is going to be not so much the making money or losing money. The most difficult part of it is going to be the market psychology. Once you can understand that, once you master that, then you can leverage up. Trading is one of those truly scalable businesses. I mean, I say to people who are, say, lawyers or accountants, for you as a lawyer to make double the amount of money, you have to work twice as hard. For a trader to make 10 times more money, I just buy 10 times more stock. That's an extra zero. Rather mm-hmm. than buying one one lot, I'll buy 10. To mm-hmm. then go from 10 to 100, it's just another zero at the end of the, uh, the trade. Mm-hmm. That is much easier to do. However, there is ri- extra risk associated with that. Yeah. So just <laughs> much easier to lose. doesn't mean you should. Sorry? And much easier to lose as well. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 
What, what's been your biggest, uh, I hate to say loss, but what's been your biggest learning lesson over the years? I think my biggest learning lesson has come from, from losses. And that's come from positions which were up that I had made money on that I thought that I was good, could continue to make even more money on. But then I lost some of that money. And did that um, go against your plan? Did you, was your plan accurate or was your plan at fault in the, in the first place? I think the plan was accurate. The execution wasn't right. The, um, the market didn't agree with my plan. So <laughs> what I should have done uh, in those cases, and I learned was to sort of be sort of taking money off the table. There mm-hmm. is always, you will never get, you will never pick the bottom. You will never pick the top. And people tend to criticize and to think, okay, I bought something at this price. I bought it at 82 and then it went down to 80 and then it went down to 75. That's okay. And then you have to ask yourself, well, do you, do you still believe in the trade or mm-hmm. did you make a bad decision? Should mm-hmm. you sort of execute your stop loss? And should you accept that I made a bad decision and I need to get out, limit my losses? And then also when you're selling something, you know, you may have bought it at 80 and then you're selling it, I don't know, at let's say 200. And then should you then, it, it could then go up to 210. It might go up to 220. That's money you left on the table. That's okay. It's okay to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, if you've gone and you've made a nice good return, take the money and move on to your next trades. That's, I think, one of the most difficult lessons to learn for people is to take that money off the table and take that profit and then sort of not keep looking back and say, oh, if I'd stayed in, I would have made even more money. Yeah. You know, it's so funny to me, and this is to me is such a fascinating expose of human psychology, is for some reason, people tend to understand dollar cost averaging on the way down as you're buying in. Um, but essentially, dollar cost averaging out uh, of a position as you're reaching the peak. That to me is where the plan becomes so essential because you have a sense of where you think a particular position might be, you know, cresting. And so you can start to take money off the table at that point. Um, it's a lesson I, I wish I knew back when I was investing in real estate in the early 2000s, because there was a clear, um, you know, you were talking about uh, Warren Buffett and the, the Shushan guy giving um, stock tips. Um, I I had people coming to me um, who I knew had no business investing in real estate and yet they wanted, you know, my opinions and they wanted to buy something. And I'm like, oh man, if these people are looking at where we've got to be, there's no more buyers left at this point. So we've got to be near the top. Um, And I should have started to take money off the table. But, but the, the concept that I had at the time was, well, if it's a right move to take some money off the table, wouldn't it be the right move to take all of the money off the table? Like, why wouldn't I completely get out of that position. And that was the, the immaturity that I had at the time, but makes so much more sense now that I've, uh, I have a few more gray hairs. <laughs> yeah. Well, the other thing that you have to accept, and we as traders accept this is that, um, no matter how good our analysis, no matter how much work we put into this, we're not always right. Right. We're not always right. We, we sometimes, I mean, if a trader can be right 60% of the time, that's good, but you're doing well. Mm-hmm. which means that 40% of the time you're going to be wrong. You're going to be wrong. It's, it's just a fact of life. When do you, when do you cut your losses? When do you know, like, do you factor in a, you know, a percentage of point, you know, like if this doesn't bottom out at where I thought it was and it's starting to retrace, do you, do you like, how do you know when you're wrong even? Um, I suppose it's just a case of having your stop losses and then looking at sort of price targets 
and looking at uh, risk return and saying, okay, what sort of risk return am I looking at on this position? <coughs> you know, if I'm looking at a four to one risk return, if, if it hits your stop loss, it hits your stop loss. But even stop losses is a fine art and they don't always... Um, they don't always work because you can have people say, well, I've got stop losses. I'm uh, I can limit my losses. Well, not necessarily because the market can gap downwards. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that was a, uh, a major shock to me was the, the Brexit vote. And I can remember I was in Atlanta, Georgia at the time when the results came in. Now, some of the people that I was working with, uh, we all knew that this was a risky Risky time. Now, I believe that the UK was not going to vote for Brexit. I thought, no, they won't vote for this. this. is stupid. It won't happen. But I still didn't have positions. I was still flat over that. One of my uh, sort of colleagues, one of my friends, he had a position over the Brexit vote and he called it the wrong way. And he lost, I think it was around 380 million. It essentially oh. wiped him out. Oh, now, Ouch. that was not a sensible thing to do. And the, the reason why that happened is the, gap, the market gapped down. So what that means is, let's say you buy a stock at 100 and you put in your stop loss at, let's say, 95. So if the stock hits 95, you, you, get, uh, you, know, you sell out. So you've lost $5 on that stock, let's say. Mm-hmm. But what happens if the market gaps down? What if it trades uh, not at 95? What if the next trade is at, let's say, 70 You've then logged, then you will be automatically filled at the next trade. If the next trade is at, let's say, 70, 71 or even $70, you've lost $30. You've lost 30% of your money. Mm-hmm. And when you're looking at leverage, if you magnify that up, that 30% can be multiplied mm. uh, tenfold, 20-fold. So that, that three, uh, $30 can become $300. Mm-hmm. How do you mitigate? Because that? you're using leverage. How, as a seasoned investor, are there things that you can do to help mitigate that? Yes, um, you can use options for positions like that. So what you can do is, if you think the risk is high enough, you, as well as having a stop loss, you can also own some puts. So in that particular situation, as well, uh, if something like your stock was going to go to 30, it was going to gap down, you would have some put options in place because those things will then shoot up in value once stock does fall down by $30. So you can then have those kind of positions on. And that's where using options um, can come in. So you can then use those as insurance against things that go against you. Can you break that down a little bit? For me, again, I'm a I'm a newbie here. So, how does that how does that provide insurance? Like, let's go oh. through the numbers for a second on an actual okay, so let's say, hypothetical let's say trade. Buy, let's say you buy a stock <coughs> at a hundred. Okay, so let's try, try to keep these numbers uh, as simple as we can. Yeah. And your target on that stock is let's say 120. So you uh, believe it's going to go to 120. So you stand to make 20, 20 dollars. Now, let's say your stop loss is let's say five dollars. So you're risking $5 uh, and you're going to make $20. So you've got a risk reward of 20 over five, which is four to one. Yeah. Now, let's say that options on that uh, stock, uh, the option, the right to buy that stock at 100, let's say it's trading for a dollar. So you can buy an option for the right to buy that stock at $100 for a dollar let's let's ignore the time period for now um 
Now, if that stock goes to $120, the right to buy that option, sorry, the right to buy that stock at $100 has now gone up. Let's say it's a 100 delta option, keeping things simple for now. So that option is now going to be worth $21. Yeah. Now, looking at the other way, let's say you have a put option, the right to sell that stock at $100. And let's say that's also trading for a dollar. Yeah. Now, let's say the, the, do, the stock falls to $70. So it's fallen $30. <coughs> the option on that would have risen by $30. The option would have risen by $30 with the price. Yeah. So you've got an option with the right to sell your stock at $100. Oh, to sell it at $100. Yeah? So it. you've paid a dollar for that stock. Yeah. Now, if you bought an option, let's say you bought one put option, which gives you the right to sell that stock at $100. Stock falls at $70. Stock falls to $70. You can exercise your option because you can sell your stock at $100. And you Where's paid the, a dollar for that. Who's buying at, at that point? The option buyer. The option buyer, got it. The person who bought the option from you. Gotcha, gotcha. Or the person who, sorry, the, the buyer is the person who sold you option. You're the option buyer. Right. The person who sold you that option has taken in a $1 premium. Got yeah? it. Got now, it. they may have a different view, but that they may also be trading those options in a different way. They may be trading the delta. So they may be hedging that away using other instruments that they've got. So they can make money as well because they've got other positions against that that they're setting. So although on that particular position with you, they have lost $30, they're making money on other positions that they've got, which are tied to that put option. Does that wow. make sense? It does. Yeah. It's starting to bring that into more clarity. Um, this is kind of a, maybe a a silly question, but what happens if that, um, seller is insolvent? Well, that's where, um, that's where the exchanges come in. (coughs) The, the person who's writing you that option can't do that unless they are a accredited investor. So unless they have an account at the exchange, Okay. Yeah. So when they're writing options, they will have placed margin. They'll have the liquidity to be able to do that. That comes into credit risk. That comes into counterparty risk. And now if it's just you and I, well then, yeah, I have to take into account your credit risk. Now for that, I may not be willing to pay a dollar. I might want to pay a lot more Mm. or a lot less. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you've got the exchange, things are standardized and the exchange acts as the counterparty. The exchange takes out the counterparty risk, which is why options markets can function. Um, when, I was in, um, when I was in trading, we also traded on the over-the-counter options market. Now there, your counterparty risk is increased because there is no exchange. So it's been between counterparties. So then they look at the risk of who's the option writer. So I worked for a Swiss bank. They had a triple A credit rating. Now they're going to they're going to be considerably stronger than say Joe Boggs down the road who's going to be mm-hmm. writing options. Yeah, mm-hmm. makes sense. Um, do you have a, uh, a case study of maybe one of your mentees that you've worked with and how they've 
grown their portfolio and maybe some of the things that they've done that the examples that you're giving is I think super helpful for somebody to sink their teeth into better understanding this. Um, so do you have an example of somebody that you've worked with and some of the, the success stories that you might have? <coughs> um, gosh, that's a good question. Uh, let me have a think now. People that I've worked with, they're, they're so varied. Uh, the, the, the three that come to mind, um, one of them was one of my neighbors. So he was the grandson of one of my neighbors, a woman that I grew up with. Um, I can remember she was very, very, she always used to cook wonderful food for me when I was growing up. And, uh, and she said to me that I was also quite mischievous. And she said that we used to lock you up in the garage to quieten you down. And then we'd open the door and you'd open it and you'd come out laughing, thinking that was fun. Let's do that again. And it was like, that was supposed to be a punishment. So I remember having a conversation with her and then I was introduced to her grandson and he was, he was in his late teens, a little bit lost. He wanted to get into trading. So I started mentoring him. Um, he's on he's on track to be a. I mean, he'll be a millionaire by the time he's twenty five. So we're talking within the next decade, without a doubt. I can see it a mile off. I can wow. just see it a mile off. Now the pattern for him was that he had to figure out what is it that he wanted to do. So he had various options. It was going to university, going to college, uh, start a business, or go out and get a job. And he couldn't really figure out what he wanted. And what we did was we spent some time working on where he wanted to go and what his personal values were. Uh, and from that, we discovered the, the best strategy for him was to actually go to university, was to go to a good university. So initially, he had been applying to sort of second tier universities. And I asked him why he was not looking at the top tier. Hmm. And he said to me, he said, well, I'm not sure if I can get in the teachers don't believe I can get into those places. And I said, well, that's not the question you should be asking. The question you should be asking is, do I want to go, go to these places? And then ask, okay, what is it that I need to do to get into these places? Mm-hmm. And first time round, he applied. He didn't get accepted. Um, he failed short of the mark. And then we, we looked at uh, the situation and thought, well, okay, is this, do you think you're capable? First of all, the question I asked him was, did you give it your best? <laughs> Did you give this 100%? And his honest answer, his brutally honest answer was no. I gave it 80, maybe 85%. And I said, okay, now, if you gave 100%, do you think you could get in? His answer was yes. Mm. We then worked, and he then managed to get into a top university in the UK. He's been working um, diligently. Uh, He's managed to get himself an internship. So when his... When his uh, peers were struggling, they were applying for internships. They were applying to the investment banks and the hedge funds. Um, They weren't getting anywhere. And yet they were looking at him and saying, well, hang on. How come you're not only are you getting somewhere, you're getting offer after offer, offer after offer. Mm. And uh, he's now started with one of the investment banks. He's on track there to sort of gain the basic education. So for him... He's on that path. Now, if we look at somebody at a different stage, he's, let's say, look at my architect, for example. Mm-hmm. He was in his uh, early 30s, working fine as an architect, um, was working in a sort of major architectural firm, was looking to start out on his own. Now, he managed to grow, grow his portfolio, and he's been seeing returns on average around 35 to 55% annual, mm-hmm. annualized returns. 
And he looks at his portfolio and makes adjustments roughly once a month. And we have regular calls where we look at where he is and what adjustments he needs to make. Now, he was making some silly mistakes as well initially. Uh, he was putting on positions that he shouldn't have been. Mm-hmm. And he was doing stuff with options without really knowing what he was doing. And, you know, we put a stop to that. And that stopped sort of hemorrhaging of cash. <coughs> now, if we look at, say, another one of my mentees, he's a gambler. He's a professional poker player. Mm. And that's how he made a lot of his money. And he wanted to get into trading. And he is now an active trader. And he trades actively. He loves the analysis. He loves looking at the different opportunities that come up. But he says he spends, uh, you know, something like around anything from five to eight hours a day doing that. But he loves it. He said it does not feel like work. Mm. He said it does not feel like work. And Mm. he says, I'm just taking the same skills that I learned. I've just learned the same skills that I learned when I was a professional poker player and I've applied it to market uh, to trading. Mm, interesting. Um, if somebody was interested in working with you, do you have a minimum or what, what is your ideal candidate look like for those that are listening and may want to reach out? I would say my ideal candidate is somebody we, we touched upon earlier is somebody who wants to grow somebody who accepts, you know what? I don't know the answer, <laughs> but I'm willing to learn. I'm willing to put aside any prejudices that I have about finance, about the markets and about money. Um, Although it may seem complicated, it's something that I can master. Mm -hmm. It's not something that I'm afraid of. So most of the people I work with are generally in their careers. They have maybe a full-time job and they just want to do something on the side that they enjoy. Mm -hmm. And they they want to take control of their personal finances. So I've got sort of various different programs that I work on with people. So for somebody who wants to learn about finance in general, let's say personal finance, there's a three-month program that I have. And with, uh, during those three months, we just go through the basics of what they need to know. So this is not turning them into a super professional trader because that may not be what they want. But mm-hmm. it's a case of understanding what do they need to do so they can live their life. So for me... Trading is about, for people, stuff that I teach is about, it's about living your life. It's about doing what you want to be doing rather than still sitting in front of a screen and looking at numbers and putting positions on and taking positions off. Now, unless you enjoy that sort of thing, if you enjoy being out in the open, let's find a way for you to use your money so that your money works for you. Mm-hmm. So that's the three-month program. And then for some people, they want to be they want to be more experts. They want to learn more about trading. They get a buzz from it. Now, mm-hmm. that can mean they want to trade an hour a day or maybe an hour a week, whatever it is for them, or even sort of three hours a week, whatever they want to do. Then I've got a three-month Traders Accelerator program. So we'll teach them more about advanced uh, trading as to what they really need to know. And then we've got the 12-month advanced program. Now, this is for people who really want to do a deep dive. They really want to sort of master this area and go deep into it and say, right, I really want to, I really love doing this and I want to do it and I want to do it really well, but the way I want to do it. And then the final program I have is really aimed at sort of advanced traders. And that's for people who want to open their own hedge fund. And that's a completely different game. 
that's uh, you know you have to learn about reg- regulatory issues about running your own uh, fund and all the reporting requirements that are involved there. When you start to take other people's money, there's a huge responsibility, and consequently, there is huge regulation around that, and rightfully so. Rightfully mm-hmm. so. Not everybody should be allowed to take people's money and just go and uh, invest it because they may not know what they're doing. Are there um, investment thresholds, minimum thresholds that you require somebody have when they come to work with you? Well, my sort of introductory program is like a few thousand dollars. Um, in terms of minimum thresholds, I think in terms of uh, there's no minimum amount in terms of the amount of capital that you have to have, because people can get started. They may not have sort of 10,000, 50,000, 100,000, whatever. They may not have that, but they, they can start to learn while they build up their capital base. Mm-hmm. So you can start learning about this stuff without having any capital. And the way that you can do that is you can acquire the skills and you can start trading with paper accounts once you start building up your confidence. Cool. And then what does it cost to work with you? How do you bill? Well, it really depends on the person. Uh, I mean, it starts from around sort of $3,700 for the three-month program. That's the sort of starting. But I also have, there's other things that I offer to people as well. Some people, they, uh, once we have a conversation, I can have, I can sort of tailor what it is that they want. So I also offer people things like trade alerts, there's market analysis, and those are like, like monthly subscriptions. So people may, may say, you know what, I don't want any of the sort of education, I can do that myself. I just want your, your trade tips. I just want to know what are you looking at. So I, I can put them onto a, a paid mailing list. And we send out say, okay, this is something that's worth looking at. Mm. So they don't get the actual traders education, what they get is the tips. Gotcha. Yeah, <clears throat> that makes sense. Um, I wanted to ask you as we're starting to wrap up here. Um, I'm just my curious brain wants to know. You mentioned earlier about Delta and Gamma and all that, and I've been in, on a spiritual journey in the last uh, 24 months where I'm learning about brainwaves and the frequency of thought and where you're, you know, when you go into a Delta sleep or you're in a Theta state of mind or whatever. Is there a is there a, a correlation to that or where do these terms come from in the trading world why do you use those terms well the 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 terms that are used in um i don't think there's a direct correlation between the delta and a gamma and the delta waves that we have on waves i mean they just picked greek letters to to describe something that's all it is um but it's interesting you mention about the brain waves and the sort of spiritual journey you've been on. I mean, one of the things that I found that took my trading to the next level was when I went to One World Academy in India. Mm. Um, people had asked me about, you know, why are you going to India? And I said, well, I'm going for a month. And they said, well, why are you going? I said, I don't know. I thought that's what you white people have to do to try and discover yourselves. <laughs> and it seems that since I grew up in the UK, I have to do the same as well. Even though I was born in India, um, it was a place that I left when I was one and a half. Mm. Now, one of the things I found there was when you get into, say, meditation and spirituality, meditation and spirituality is not a contradiction to the work, uh, the work that we do in finance. It right. is complementary. Right. These things are complementary. I think even Ray Dalio, who I, who I met in India, he said to me, he says, yeah, people, people say, how can you reconcile 
running a, a multi-billion dollar hedge fund and spirituality. And he said, it's, it's because of the spirituality work that I run a multi-billion dollar hedge fund. Mm. Yeah. And he says, I will miss a meal, but I will never miss my daily meditation. And he mm. does sort of two, two sessions of meditation a day. And I think what you find or what I found is when you get into, say, spirituality and meditation, you use more of yourself. You use more of the brain. There is science behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, Western science is now discovering what Eastern philosophy has known for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And we are discovering from a neurological point of view and from a neuroscience point of view as to what's actually taking place. And it's paradoxical that when you start to do meditation, when you start to connect to that part of yourself, you start to connect the the brain to the heart, to the rest of your body and to your spirituality. And when you do that, you achieve more, even though you feel that you're doing less. Mm-hmm. It's the, the analogy that I use is when I bought my first car as a student, which cost me like a few hundred bucks, it was an old banger and it didn't run very well. It had a, an engine that was a small engine. And when I was doing 60 miles an hour on the freeway, the engine was struggling away. You could hear it struggling, really yeah. working hard. Now compare that to, say, getting into, say, something like a Mercedes or a BMW or a high-end sports car, which has a bigger engine. You can be doing 100, 200 miles an hour. We can do that here in, uh, in Germany on the Autobahn. And the engine is just coasting along. It mm-hmm. doesn't feel as though it's working. It's mm-hmm. the same with meditation and the brain. Once mm-hmm. you get into spirituality, once you sort of embrace that part of yourself, you will achieve more, you will do more, and yet you will feel as though you are doing less. And yeah. it will feel so much easier. It's fascinating. I love I love that we're kind of wrapping this up with that because to me, that's sort of the, the heart of the podcast is um, a spiritual foundation and... Uh, how various experts are making an impact with their with their expertise. Um, so I really appreciate that perspective. I'd love to talk more about that offline, actually, with you and hear more about your experience because I know everybody I've spoken to that have gone there has been, yeah, they've been a changed person when they come back for the better. So oh, um, I think it goes to what uh, what Tony says. I think I'm at the stage in life now where I've had the success. I've lived the dream life and traveled the world. I mean, when I did my plat year, uh, I traveled the world for the best part of two years. And people said, why did you travel the world for two years? I said, well, because I want to, yeah. because I want to. Well, well what other reasons do you need? Yeah. <coughs> so I, I, I've been there and I've done that. But now we reach that point in our lives where it's about, as Tony says, it's about growth and contribution. Mm-hmm. It's about giving back. It's about what's the legacy that we're going to leave. And I, say, and I say to people, are you the sort of person that is willing to plant trees, the shade of which you will not sit under? Are you willing to plant crops, the fruit of which you will not enjoy? Mm-hmm. Because you won't be around to do that. So that's why I started mentoring people. Um, the 17-year-old or the teenager who's the grandson of my neighbor, um, I probably will be around to see his success, mm-hmm. but it's literally planting those seeds. And one of the things that I sort of relate to them is that, yes, you're going to have this success, but you must also give back at some stage. You must help the next generation mm-hmm. because there were people who came before me 
that poured into me their knowledge. They gave me the knowledge that has made me uh, who I am. And some of those I, I may not even remember, but people poured into me. And mm. now it's my turn to pour into other people mm. and to water those flowers, to water those trees. That's what life is really about. I love that, Val. Um, for somebody that's interested in connecting with you, what's the best uh, avenue to do that? The best way would be to find me on Facebook, uh, reach out to me uh, on Facebook. That's the best place. Or if they can DM you or send you an email or you know, they can e email me, I always respond to my DMs directly. I don't have a, a PA to, to manage all of that. So you will be talking to me directly. I don't know how much longer that's going to go on for since... Uh, <laughs> You know, once I start to sort of mentor people, I want to be spending more time with actually sort of teaching them what I need, what they need to know, mm -hmm. uh, rather than the sort of um, admin side of things. Sure. If they can reach out to me through that, find me on Facebook, find me on, uh, I also attend rooms in Clubhouse as well. Um, Clubhouse has been a very interesting platform, but those are more sort of other, other rooms, maybe on spirituality and other things. Gotcha. Very good. For so again, for somebody that's interested, it's Baldobe, B-A-L-D-O-B-E. Uh, you can find him on Facebook and reach him there, or feel free to contact me, and I'll put you in touch with him as well. Val, this has been a brilliant conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise, your wisdom, uh, your spirituality, and your heart with us today. Peter, it's been an absolute pleasure, and once again, thank you so much for reaching out to me. Uh, it's always a pleasure to be able to help my Platt brothers and sisters. Uh, you know, because we we both did that together. I think the thing about Platt is um, it's it's the gift that keeps giving is mm -hmm. the best way I would look at it. And people ask me why I did it. And I said, yes, you know, it was nice to have those front row seats at the Tony, Tony event. And that was enjoyable. Um, and I enjoyed my my year of doing it. I enjoyed traveling the world. But the biggest gift by far has to be and this is the reason I joined was the quality of people that I met, those relationships, those connections that I formed, that the people that I have in my address book, people that I have in my uh, phone contacts that I can pick up the phone to and ask advice on, that is just totally and utterly priceless. Yes. You just can't buy access to that. And those are the relationships that I formed during those years. And these are these are people that, you know, these are people who don't want to want to be found. And yet I can have conversations with them. And I am still blown away that not only did I meet such people, but these people became my close friends and that I can pick up the phone to them and have a conversation like you and I are having. Yes, 100 percent. I didn't know that I was going to be getting that level of connection when I joined, um, I, you know, I, I thought it was going to be more about my own personal journey. And, and of course, learning from Tony and, and a lot of the insights that we got through him, but I couldn't agree with you more that the network that you get when you join the platinum partnership has been invaluable. Uh, and it, just out of the gate, you're dealing with people who are like-minded, who are seeking to improve, who are willing to put themselves in uncomfortable positions to grow. Um, and it's been, uh, it's been a real honor to connect with people such as yourself. Um, so Bal, <clears throat> again, thank you again for an incredible conversation today. Thanks. Thank you so much, Pisa.